Hi, this is Bill Feldham coming to you with the Wall Street Journal. And our first article of the day is from the National Review. And it says, Trump spares stone from imprisonment, sparking howls from... Uh, <laughs> uh, crazy Democrats, that's how I'll put it. One-time defenders of unsavory Clinton and Obama pardons are outraged uh, by the president's computation of the of his old associate's 40-month sentence. Bill Clinton's pardon, his own brother for felony distribution of cocaine, and a key witness in the Whitewater scandal for which he and Hillary Clinton were under investigation. And three others convicted in independent counsel Ken Starr's probe and Mark Rich, in which was a straight-up political payoff, and his CIA director and his HUD secretary and eight people convicted in an investigation of his agricultural department. No surprise there. The Clintons and their supporters then, like Trump and his supporters now, regarded the special prosecutor's probes into the administration as a witch hunt. Clinton also uh, commuted the sentences of convicted terrorists, some of whom haven't even asked for clemency. Shameless as he was, though, he even couldn't bring himself to pardon Oscar Lopez Rivera, the defiantly unrepentant FALN leader. President Obama took care of that. Obama also uh, commuted the sentences of a U.S. soldier who passed top-secret information to WikiLeaks. He pardoned his former Joint Chiefs of Staff vice chairman, who'd been convicted of making false statements about a leak of classified information to the New York Times, and when he couldn't get Congress to amend federal drug laws the way he wanted them amended, Obama used the pardon power to slash hundreds of sentences under an executive initiative later sharply criticized by the Obama-appointed DOJ Inspector General. Uh, that doesn't even account for the Obama administration's penchant for making sure things never got to pardon stage by distorting the law to give Hillary Clinton, the same Hillary Clinton who was nearly indicted in the aforementioned Clinton-era scheme, a pass asserting executive privilege to obstruct the Fast and Furious investigation, for which Obama's attorney general was held in contempt of Congress, ignoring his CIA director spying on the Senate Intelligence Committee, and turning in a blind eye to the abuses of power and obstructions attended to the scandal that engulfed his IRS. So, as abuses of the pardon power go, and they do go, I can't get too whipped up over President Trump's computation of Roger Stone's 40-month sentence for nonviolent criminal obstruction of a bogusly based and ridiculously over-prosecuted investigation. Not under circumstances in which jailhouse doors have been swung open all over the country by federal, state, and local governments, which are using the coronavirus pande pandemic as a rationale to release both hardened criminals and elderly convicts, those around Stone's age. Not under circumstances in which Trump is keeping Stone's felony convictions intact, Stone has not been pardoned, at least not yet.
not under circumstances in which many of Trump's loudest critics are the same Democrats and media cheerleaders who not only soft-pedaled the outrageous Clinton and Obama pardons, but who would have been blissfully content to have the pervasively corrupt Hillary Clinton in the Oval Office exercising the pardon power, no doubt, on her husband's model. I should here specify that Roger Stone is a whack job. If we are assessing President Trump's job performance, though, it is more damaging that he has brought people such as Michael Cohen, Paul Manafort, Rick Gates, and Stone into his inner circle than that he has used the pardon power to spare one of them from imprisonment, especially since the one in question poses no threat to society, or at least no threat other than those who chose to endure his rantings. Practice your Frank uh, Pentagelli on nighttime cable. That's just my opinion, of course, which is the point. The check on abuse of the pardon power is political. If you are offended by Trump's act of clemency on uh, behalf of a longstanding ally of checkered character, go ahead and vote him out of office. Just please spare us the righteous indignation if you'll be perfectly happy to have Clinton's or the Obama's Biden team back in power making the clemency calls. Beyond that, the worst thing about the Stone pardon is the damage Trump has inflicted on his Justice Department. If he was going to commute Stone's sentence, then he should have done it after Stone's convicted or just pardon Stone outright since he claims to be Stone, <coughs> excuse me, did nothing wrong. Instead, because Trump did not want to take the political heat for that, the trial prosecutors, accurately applying the harsh sentence guidelines, recommended a nine-year sentence. That induced Attorney General Barr to intervene and propose a much more reasonable sentence recommendation along the lines of the 40-month term that the judge ended up imposing. Naturally, this caused the AG to be scolded by the Democrat media complex for purported corruption in intervening on behalf of the Trump crony. Notwithstanding that he did not lift a finger to undo Stone's multiple felony convictions and was content to send the near uh, septuagarian uh, to the penitentiary for over three years, even as the COVID-based humanitarian release of convicts, convicts ensued. Moreover, Stone's day of reckoning was at hand. He was due to surrender to begin serving his sentence on Tuesday. Only because Barr's Justice Department opposed any further delay, and Barr reportedly recommended that Trump not grant clemency. In any event, if the president had been transparent about his intentions, there would have been no cause for Justice Department infighting over Stone's sentence. Instead, that will be the subject of congressional hearing fireworks later this month. As for the rest of it, we're left with the unusual, unhinged commentary from people who ought to know better. Take top Mueller deputy Andrew Weissman. After the clemency was announced, Weissman took to Twitter to assert, time to put Roger Stone in the grand jury to find out what he knows about Trump but would not tell. Computation uh, can't stop that. Well, no, but the Fifth Amendment can. 
Stone is appealing his convictions. Weissman, a longtime prosecutor who is intimately familiar with the appellate process, has to know that because Trump did not pardon Stone, the case is still on direct appeal. That means the convictions are not final as a matter of law. Stone thus maintains his Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination and cannot be forced to testify in the grand jury. He probably has scant hope of getting his conviction reversed, but he's entitled to try. A lawyer of Weissman's acumen uh, should not get such a basic legal point wrong, but he is so politically and emotionally invested in attacking Trump that he obviously tweeted without thinking things through. The tweet underscores that Weissman, an overt Biden surrogate these days, was a terrible choice for a special counsel probe that should have been rigorously nonpartisan. He scorched the earth investigating Trump for three years. To imply that he might have nabbed the president where it not for Roger Stone's omerta is pathetic. Wiseman could have immunized Stone if he believed Stone was withholding vital incriminating evidence against Trump. And then he could have prosecuted Stone for contempt if Stone resisted. He didn't do that because there is no reason to think that Stone had incriminating evidence. Stone was alleged to have lied about discussing WikiLeaks. That's why he was charged only with process crimes. Despite all of the heavy breathing about collusion in Mueller's indictment of Stone, Weissman and company did not come close to proving that he or Trump had anything to do with the hacking of the Democrat Party emails by Russia or by anyone else. The Stone episode has been farcical from the start, and it's still not over. And this is by Andy McCarthy, is a senior fellow at the National Review Institute. And that's very important to know. It's still not over, and so uh, we're still going to have to deal with this nonsense. And moving on to science and technology here at the National Review. You'll find this is a very good uh, uh, website uh, to get information from. The Ideological Corruption of Science by Wesley J. Smith. Uh, why don't many people trust the science anymore? Perhaps because science as an institution has fallen prey to the same ideological infection that has invaded and corrupted many other institutions. But it is too rarely discussed, which is why a Sunday Wall Street Journal column by theoretical physicist Lawrence Krauss is so important. Krauss highlights how our various moral panics over real and less pr provable inequalities have transformed labs and schools into thought prisons where research is stifled and heterodox views are punished from the ideological corruption of science, and I do have that article. Actual censorship is also occurring. A distinguished chemist in Canada argued in favor of merit-based science and against hiring practices that aim at equality of outcome if they result in discrimination against the most meritous candidates. For that, he was censured by the university's provost. 
his published review article on research and education in organic synthesis was removed from the journal's website and two editors involved in accepting it were suspended. An Italian scientist at the International Laboratory, CERN, C-E-R-N, home to the large uh, Hadron Collider, or Hydrin Collider, depending on how you say it, had his scheduled seminar on statistical imbalances between the sexes and physics canceled and his position at the laboratory revoked because he suggested that apparent inequalities might not be directly due to sexism. A group of linguist students initiated a public position, petition, excuse me, asking that the physicist Steve Pinker be stripped of his position as a linguist society of American fellows for such offensives as tweeting a New York Times article they disapproved of. Bench scientists and others in the sector are paralyzed with fear and possible career loss if they don't toe the line. As ideological encroachments corrupt scientists, scientific institutions, one might wonder why more scientists aren't defending the hard scientists from this intrusion. The answer is that many academics are afraid, and for good reason. They are hesitant to disagree with scientific leadership groups, and they see what has happened to scientists who do. They see how researchers lose funding if they can't justify how their research programs will explicitly combat claims systematic racism or sexism, a requirement for scientific proposals now being applied by granting agencies. This authoritarian atmosphere stifles free scientific inquiry, the essential hallmark of the scientific method and threatens the objectivity so essential to the sector's success. Such corruption has real-world consequences. Not only the stifling of scientific advances that Krauss worries about, but a loss of trust by the people in what the scientists tell us. If you doubt me, just look at what has been happening in the current pandemic crisis. And that's so true. Now, let's jump over to the uh, Wall Street Journal for the other article. And let me check my time real quick. Okay, we got plenty of time. And... I thought I had saved it. I guess I didn't. Sorry about that. I'll find it for the next uh, half hour reading. And moving on to the uh, next article there. And that one was talking about the case for reopening the schools. And this is from July 13th. The harm from lost instruction outweighs the COVID-19 risk. Everything else about the coronavirus has become politicized in America. So why not a return to school as well? 
that's the depressing state of play as President Trump pushes schools to reopen while Democrats heed teachers unions that demand more federal money and even then may not return. The losers, as ever, would be the children. The evidence, scientific, health, and economic, argues overwhelmingly for schools to open in the fall. Start with the relative immunity of young children to the disease, which should reassure parents. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, 30 children under the age of 15 have died from the COVID-19. In a typical year, 190 children die of the flu, 436 from suicide, 625 from homicide, and 4,114 from unintentional deaths such as drowning. Only two children under the age of 18 have died in Chicago. Fewer than were killed in shootings in a recent weekend. In New York City, 0.03% of children under the age of 18 have been hospitalized for COVID. And 7.5 in 1 million have died. The death rate for those over 75 is more than 2,200 times higher than for, for those under 18. Children so far have been shielded from the virus compared to working adults. But even pediatric cancer patients at New York's Memorial Salone Kettering were about a third less likely to test positive than their adult caregivers, and only one of 20 who tested positive required non-critical hospital care. In Sweden, which kept schools open, only 20 children under the age of 19, 0.6% of confirmed cases have been admitted to the ICU, and only one has died. Parents and teachers understandably worry that children might spread the virus, but a recent retrospective study of schools in northern France from February before the lockdowns found that despite three introductions of the virus into three primary schools, there appears to have been no further transmissions of the virus to other pupils or teachers and non-teaching staff of the schools. Teens appear to be more infectious, yet schools that have reopened in most countries, including Germany, Singapore, Norway, Denmark, and Finland, haven't experienced outbreaks. Some schools in Israel had outbreaks last month after class sizes were increased, but most infections of both teachers and students were mild. In any case, these risks can be managed as the Trump administration has suggested in its guidance to schools. Space desks six feet apart, staggered class periods make kids wear face coverings when possible, keeping them in the same cohorts and have them eat, play, and learn outdoors as much as possible. Teachers can also wear face shields and schools can use plastic barriers in higher grade level classrooms to separate them from kids. Teachers who are older or have underlying health conditions deserve special accommodations, but employers and employees in most ind industries are making adjustments to manage through the pandemic, and there's no reason schools and teachers can't too. States, are, uh, states so far have received $150 billion in pandemic release from Congress much of which can go to education, and schools have received $13.2 on top of that. Unions are demanding more.
But Education Secretary Betsy DeVos says schools have used a mere $195 million. Republicans in Congress should condition additional funding in a fifth virus aid package on schools physically reopening five days a week. If some public schools or districts refuse to reopen, make the money available to charter or private schools that are open. Keeping schools closed while awaiting a vaccine isn't an acceptable alternative. You don't need a degree in child psychology to know kids have struggled with virtual education. A Reuters analysis last month found that fewer than half of 57 public school districts were taking attendance. About a third weren't providing required services to special needs students. Teachers unions have fought to reduce accountability. United Teachers Los Angeles pandemic collective bargaining agreement prohibited schools <coughs> from requiring face-to-face -face online instruction such as Zoom or Skype. Teachers also don't have to work more than four hours per day. Philadelphia Superintendent William Height warned that kids were fall falling through the cracks, which could pretend an increase in youth delinquency and crime. Research outfit NWEA has projected that students are likely to return in fall 2020 with approximately 63 to 68% of learning gains in reading relative to a typical school year and with 37 to 50% of the learning gains in math. Another half year or year of lost instruction will be impossible to make up. Achievement gaps will surely increase. Affluent families may supplement and monitor the children's virtual instructions while working from home. But how can a first grader whose parents don't have the luxury but expected to learn virtually on his own? Missing school can have serious consequences for children's health and well-being, particularly for students with disabilities or with special health care needs. American Academy of Pediatrics President Sally Gaza says recently, students physically in school, she added, learn social and emotional skills, get healthy meals and exercise and mental health support. Schools help identify and address learning disabilities uh, deficiencies, physical abuse, substance use, depression, and suicidal identi identities. These are all critical reasons to get children back to school. The AAP last week endorsed unions' financial demands on reopening, but the child health points hold. Billions of parents can't return to work if their children can't attend school. Opening the schools is essential to well-beings of students and teachers and administrators have a duty to make it happen. So there you go. It's not about the kids. It's about the teachers unions. That's what they're telling you there. So don't think it's about the, about the kids. It's all about the teachers unions. And moving on, we have time for one more article. And let me move to my saved articles here. And 
and this is a short article how to keep your phone working when there's no service apps that work offline essential in-car gear and other tips to consider before seeking social and cell signal distance on your summer road trip hey we still are in the summer this is by nicole Wynn. Uh, you might have canceled trips requiring air travel but that's not stopping you from hitting the road in search of respite and social distancing from the family, friends, and other quarantine bubble regulars you've seen far too much of lately. AAA projects, Amer uh, projects Americans will take more than 700 million trips between July and September, with 97% of those holidays by car. This summer, it's not just the flexibility, but the comfort of traveling in your own vehicle, limiting exposure and control of where you stop and when, says AAA spokeswoman Jeanette Castellano. The trouble is, service can be spotty on the open road or go away completely. Here's a guide to keeping your phone working for navigation, entertainment, and communication when you're in a dead zone and you can use the same trip tips while you're riding the subway. <gasps> gasp or trying to stay below your data cap gearing up your battery will drain more quickly than using than usual when your phone is constantly seeking a cell signal in low service areas use a setting called low power mode on I ios and battery saver on android you'll also want a battery backup anchor a-N-K-E-R, one of my preferred brands of charging accessory, has a high-capacity power bank, $43, that can hold about five full, five full smart battery charges. For a car-specific gadgetry, gadgetry, I wanted to consult a real road expert, so I turned to Katie Larson, a 28-year-old who runs a blog called So We Bought a Van. She's been living and working out of a vehicle while traveling across North America for over three years. Miss Larson, converted Mercedes Sprinter, has a pressurized outdoor shower, bed, and kitchen complete with fridge, sink, and propane-powered stove. Doesn't sound good to me, but either way. While you properly wouldn't need all those bells and whistles for your trip, Miss Larson and car essentials are useful. The Garmin 45 dash cam to record the drive for $150. A check engine light car code reader to tell you why that alert's flashing and turn it off for $45. And the iAudi one-touch phone mount to go hands-free for $25. That's I-O-T-T-I-E, one-touch phone mount. For solo adventurers going to remote areas for extended periods, she recommends the SPOT, S-P-O-T, $100, $15 a month service plan, a satellite device that can provide your coordinates to emergency response teams and send check-ins to personal contacts. Planning your trip. Van life isn't just about having the right gear. Planning ahead is going to really come in handy right now, says Miss Larson, a Portland, Oregon native who runs errands just once a week to limit exposure during the pandemic. My colleague, Ray Smith, puts together an excellent guide on the road trip considerations. Also checks AAA's TripTick website for the latest travel restrictions across the country. 
Next, find out what kind of cellular coverage issues you might face. Beyond your carrier's potentially unhelpful coverage map, you can consult detailed network coverage maps from root metrics and open signal. You'll likely need to call to confirm whether some places you want to visit are open. If you're in a location with some Wi-Fi but terrible cellular coverage, enable Wi-Fi calling. Verizon, AT&T, T-Mobile, and Sprint support the feature on most devices, models released in 2015 or after. You'll find it under your phone settings, cellular for iPhones, connection for Android devices. And then it has uh, different apps that you can have. And you could find this article in the Wall Street Journal. Um, and this came from July 13th, if you're looking for it. And this is Personal Technology by Nicole Wynn. And that's all the time I have for this half hour. So with that said, grab what you need to drink and grab what you need to eat. And uh, we'll be right back with the second half hour of the Wall Street Journal. Hi, this is Bill Feldham coming to you with the Wall Street Journal. And our first article of the day is from the National Review. And it says, Trump spares stone from imprisonment, sparking howls from... Uh, <laughs> uh, crazy Democrats, that's how I'll put it. One-time defenders of unsavory Clinton and Obama pardons are outraged uh, by the president's computation of, the, of his old associate's 40-month sentence. Bill Clinton's pardon, his own brother for felony distribution of cocaine, and a key witness in the Whitewater scandal for which he and Hillary Clinton were under investigation and three others convicted in independent counsel Ken Starr's probe, and Mark Rich, in which was a straight-up political payoff, and his CIA director, and his HUD secretary, and eight people convicted in an investigation of his agricultural department. No surprise there, the Clintons and their supporters then, like Trump and his supporters now, regarded the special prosecutor's probes into the administration as a witch hunt. Clinton also uh, commuted the sentences of convicted terrorists, some of whom haven't even asked for clemency. Shameless as he was, though, he even couldn't bring himself to pardon Oscar Lopez Rivera, the defiantly unrepentant FALN leader. President Obama took care of that. Obama also uh, commuted the sentences of a U.S. soldier who passed top-secret information to WikiLeaks. He pardoned his former Joint Chiefs of Staff vice chairman, who'd been convicted of making false statements about a leak of classified information to the New York Times, and when he couldn't get Congress to amend federal drug laws the way he wanted them amended, Obama used the pardon power to slash hundreds of sentences under an executive initiative later sharply criticized by the Obama-appointed DOJ Inspector General. Uh, that doesn't even account for the Obama administration's penchant for making sure things never got to pardon stage by distorting the law to give Hillary Clinton 
the same Hillary Clinton who was nearly indicted in the aforementioned Clinton-era scheme, a pass asserting executive privilege to obstruct the Fast and Furious investigation, for which Obama's attorney general was held in contempt of Congress, ignoring his CIA director spying on the Senate Intelligence Committee, and turning in a blind eye to the abuses of power and obstructions attended to the scandal that engulfed his IRS. So, as abuses of the pardon power go, and they do go, I can't get too whipped up over President Trump's computation of Roger Stone's 40-month sentence for nonviolent criminal obstruction of a bogusly based and ridiculously over-prosecuted investigation. Not under circumstances in which jailhouse doors have been swung open all over the country by federal, state, and local governments, which are using the coronavirus pandemic as a rationale to release both hardened criminals and elderly convicts, those around Stone's age. Not under circumstances in which Trump is keeping Stone's felony convictions intact, Stone has not been pardoned, at least not yet. Not under circumstances in which many of Trump's loudest critics are the same Democrats and media cheerleaders who not only soft-pedaled the outrageous Clinton and Obama pardons, but who would have been blissfully content to have the pervasively corrupt Hillary Clinton in the Oval Office exercising the pardon power, no doubt, on her husband's model. I should here specify that Roger Stone is a whack job. If we are assessing President Trump's job performance, though, it is more damaging that he has brought people such as Michael Cohen, Paul Manafort, Rick Gates, and Stone into his inner circle than that he has used the pardon power to spare one of them from imprisonment, especially since the one in question poses no threat to society, or at least no threat other than those who chose to endure his rantings. Practice your Frank uh, Pentagelli on nighttime cable. That's just my opinion, of course, which is the point. The check on abuse of the pardon power is political. If you are offended by Trump's act of clemency on uh, behalf of a longstanding ally of checkered character, go ahead and vote him out of office. Just please spare us the righteous indignation if you'll be perfectly happy to have Clinton's or the Obama's Biden team back in power making the clemency calls. Beyond that, the worst thing about the Stone pardon is the damage Trump has inflicted on his Justice Department. If he was going to commute Stone's sentence, then he should have done it after Stone's convicted or just pardoned Stone outright since he claims to be Stone, <coughs> excuse me, did nothing wrong. Instead, because Trump did not want to take the political heat for that, the trial prosecutors, accurately applying the harsh sentence guidelines, recommended a nine-year sentence. That induced Attorney General Barr to intervene and propose a much more reasonable sentence recommendation along the lines of the 40-month term that the judge ended up imposing. Naturally, this caused the AG to be scolded by the Democrat media complex for purported corruption in intervening on behalf of the Trump crony, 
notwithstanding that he did not lift a finger to undo Stone's multiple felony convictions and was content to send the near uh, septuagarian uh, to the penitentiary for over three years, even as the COVID-based humanitarian release of convicts, convicts ensued. Moreover, Stone's day of reckoning was at hand. He was due to surrender to begin serving his sentence on Tuesday, only because Barr's Justice Department opposed any further delay, and Barr reportedly recommended that Trump not grant clemency. In any event, if the president had been transparent about his intentions, there would have been no cause for Justice Department infighting over Stone's sentence. Instead, that will be the subject of congressional hearing fireworks later this month. As for the rest of it, we're left with the unusual, unhinged commentary from people who ought to know better. Take top Mueller deputy Andrew Weissman. After the clemency was announced, Weissman took to Twitter to assert Time to put Roger Stone in the grand jury to find out what he knows about Trump, but would not tell. Computation uh, can't stop that. Well, no, but the Fifth Amendment can. Stone is appealing his convictions. Weissman, a longtime prosecutor who is intimately familiar with the appellate process, has to know that because Trump did not pardon Stone, the case is still on direct appeal. That means the convictions are not final as a matter of law. Stone thus maintains his Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination and cannot be forced to testify in the grand jury. He probably has scant hope of getting his conviction reversed, but he's entitled to try. A lawyer of Weissman's acumen uh, should not get such a basic legal point wrong, but he is so politically and emotionally invested in attacking Trump that he obviously tweeted without thinking things through. The tweet underscores that Weissman, an overt Biden surrogate these days, was a terrible choice for a special counsel probe that should have been rigorously nonpartisan. He scorched the earth investigating Trump for three years to imply that he might have nabbed the president where it not for Roger Stone's omerta is pathetic. Wiseman could have immunized Stone if he believed Stone was withholding vital incriminating evidence against Trump. And then he could have prosecuted Stone for contempt if Stone resisted. He didn't do that because there is no reason to think that Stone had incriminating evidence. Stone was alleged to have lied about discussing WikiLeaks. That's why he was charged only with process crimes. Despite all of the heavy breathing about collusion in Mueller's indictment of Stone, Weissman and company did not come close to proving that he or Trump had anything to do with the hacking of the Democrat Party emails by Russia or by anyone else. The Stone episode has been farcical from the start, and it's still not over. And this is by Andy McCarthy, is a senior fellow at the National Review Institute. And that's very important to know. It's still not over, and so uh, we're still going to have to deal with this nonsense. And moving on to science and technology here at the National Review. You'll find this is a very good uh, uh, website 
to get information from. The Ideological Corruption of Science by Wesley J. Smith. Uh, why don't many people trust the science anymore? Perhaps because science as an institution has fallen prey to the same ideological infection that has invaded and corrupted many other institutions. But it is too rarely discussed, which is why a Sunday Wall Street Journal column by theoretical physicist Lawrence Krauss is so important. Krauss highlights how our various moral panics over real and less pr provable inequalities have transformed labs and schools into thought prisons where research is stifled and heterodox views are punished from the ideological corruption of science. And I do have that article. Actual censorship is also occurring. A distinguished chemist in Canada argued in favor of merit-based science and against hiring practices that aim at equality of outcome if they result in discrimination against the most meritorious candidates. For that, he was censured by the university's provost. He, his published review article on research and education in organic synthesis was removed from the journal's website, and two editors involved in accepting it were suspended. An Italian scientist at the International Laboratory, CERN, C-E-R-N, home to the large uh, Hadron Collider, or Hydron Collider, depending on how you say it, had his scheduled seminar on statistical imbalances between the sexes in physics canceled and his position at the laboratory revoked because he suggested that apparent inequalities might not be directly due to sexism. A group of linguist students initiated a public position, petition, excuse me, asking that the physicist Steve Pinker be stripped of his position as a linguist society of American fellows for such offensives as tweeting a New York Times article they disapproved of. Bent scientists and others in the sector are paralyzed with fear and possible career loss if they don't toe the line. As ideological encroachments corrupt scientists, scientific institutions, one might wonder why more scientists aren't defending the hard scientists from this intrusion. The answer is that many academics are afraid, and for good reason. They are hesitant to disagree with scientific leadership groups, and they see what has happened to scientists who do. They see how researchers lose funding if they can't justify how their research programs will explicitly combat claims systematic racism or sexism, a requirement for scientific proposals now being applied by granting agencies. This authoritarian atmosphere stifles free scientific inquiry, the essential hallmark of the scientific method and threatens the ob objectivity so essential to the sector's success. Such corruption has real-world world consequences. Not only the stifling of scientific advances that Krauss worries about, but a loss of trust by the people in what the scientists tell us. If you doubt me, just look at what has been happening in the current pandemic crisis. And that's so true. Now, let's jump over to the uh, Wall Street Journal 
for the other article. And let me check my time real quick. Okay, we got plenty of time. And I thought I had saved it. I guess I didn't. Sorry about that. I'll find it for the next uh, half hour reading. And moving on to the uh, next article there. And that was talking about the case for reopening the schools. And this is from July 13th. The harm from lost instruction outweighs the COVID-19 risk. Everything else about the coronavirus has become politicized in America. So why not a return to school as well? That's the depressing state of play as President Trump pushes schools to reopen while Democrats heed teachers unions that demand more federal money and even then may not return. The losers, as ever, would be the children. The evidence, scientific, health and economic, argues overwhelmingly for schools to open in the fall. Start with the relative immunity immunity of young children to the disease, which should reassure parents. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, 30 children under the age of 15 have died from the COVID-19. In a typical year, 190 children die of the flu, 436 from suicide, 625 from homicide, and 4,114 from unintentional deaths such as drowning. Only two children under the age of 18 have died in Chicago. Fewer than were killed in shootings in a recent weekend. In New York City, 0.03% of children under the age of 18 have been hospitalized for COVID. And 7.5 in 1 million have died. The death rate for those over 75 is more than 2,200 times higher than for those under 18. Children so far have been shielded from the virus compared to working adults, but even pediatric cancer patients at New York's Memorial Sloan Kettering were about a third less likely to test positive than their adult caregivers, and only one of 20 who tested positive required non-critical hospital care. In Sweden, which kept schools open, only 20 children under the age of 19 0.6% of confirmed cases have been admitted to the ICU and only one has died. Parents and teachers understandably worry that children might spread the virus, but a recent retrospective study of schools in northern France from February before the lockdowns found that despite three introductions of the virus into three primary schools, there appears to have been no further transmissions of the virus to other pupils or teachers and non-teaching staff of the schools. 
teens appear to be more infectious, yet schools that have reopened in most countries, including Germany, Singapore, Norway, Denmark, and Finland, haven't experienced outbreaks. Some schools in Israel had outbreaks last month after class sizes were increased, but most infections of both teachers and students were mild. In any case, these risks can be managed as the Trump administration has suggested in its guidance to schools. Space desks six feet apart, staggered class periods make kids wear face coverings when possible, keeping them in the same cohorts and have them eat, play, and learn outdoors as much as possible. Teachers can also wear face shields and schools can use plastic barriers in higher grade level classrooms to separate them from kids. Teachers who are older or have underlying health conditions deserve special accommodations, but employers and employees in most industries are making adjustments to manage through the pandemic, and there's no reason schools and teachers can't too. States states so far have received $150 billion in pandemic relief from Congress much of which can go to education, and schools have received $13.2 billion on top of that. Unions are demanding more, but Education Secretary Betsy DeVos says schools have used a mere $195 million. Republicans in Congress should condition additional funding in a fifth virus aid package on schools physically reopening five days a week. If some public schools or districts refuse to reopen, make the money available to charter or private schools that are open. Keeping schools closed while awaiting a vaccine isn't an acceptable alternative. You don't need a degree in child psychology to know kids have struggled with virtual education. A Reuters analysis last month found that fewer than half of 57 public school districts were taking attendance. About a third weren't providing required services to special needs students. Teachers unions have fought to reduce accountability. United Teachers Los Angeles pandemic collective bargaining agreement prohibited schools (coughs) from requiring face-to-face online instruction such as Zoom or Skype. Teachers also don't have to work more than four hours per day. Philadelphia Superintendent William Height warned that kids were falling through the cracks, which could pretend an increase in youth delinquency and crime. Research outfit NWEA has projected that students are likely to return in fall 2020 with approximately 63 to 68% of learning gains in reading relative to a typical school year and with 37 to 50% of the learning gains in math. Another half year or year of lost instruction will be impossible to make up. Achievement gaps will surely increase. Affluent families may supplement and monitor their children's virtual instructions while working from home. But how can a first grader whose parents don't have the luxury but expected to learn virtually on his own? Missing school can have serious consequences for children's health and well-being, particularly for students with disabilities or with special health care needs. American Academy of Pediatrics President Sally Gaza says recently, students physically in school, she added, learn social and emotional skills 
get healthy meals and exercise and mental health support. Schools help identify and address learning uh, deficiencies, physical abuse, substance use, depression, and suicidal identities. These are all critical reasons to get children back to school. The AAP last week endorsed unions' financial demands on reopening, but the child health points hold. Millions of parents can't return to work if their children can't attend school. Opening the schools is essential to well-beings of students, and teachers and administrators have a duty to make it happen. So there you go. It's not about the kids. It's about the teachers' unions. That's what they're telling you there. So don't think it's about the about the kids. It's all about the teachers' unions. And moving on, we have time for one more article. And let me move to my saved articles here. And this is a short article. How to keep your phone working when there's no service. Apps that work offline, essential in-car gear, and other tips to consider before seeking social and cell signal distance on your summer road trip. Hey, we still are in the summer. This is by Nicole Wynn. Uh, You might have canceled trips requiring air travel, but that's not stopping you from hitting the road in search of respite and social distancing from the family, friends, and other quarantine bubble regulars you've seen far too much of lately. AAA projects uh, projects Americans will take more than 700 million trips between July and September, with 97% of those holidays by car. This summer, it's not just the flexibility, but the comfort of traveling in your own vehicle, limiting exposure, and control of where you stop and when, says AAA spokeswoman Jeanette Casalano. The trouble is... Service can be spotty on the open road or go away completely. Here's a guide to keeping your phone working for navigation, entertainment, and communication when you're in a dead zone and you can use the same tips while you're riding the subway, (gasps) gasp, or trying to stay below your data cap. Gearing up. Your battery will drain more quickly than than usual when your phone is constantly seeking a cell signal. In low service areas, use a setting called low power mode on iOS and battery saver on Android. You'll also want a battery backup. Anchor, A-N-K-E-R, one of my preferred brands of charging accessory, has a high capacity power bank, $43, that can hold about five five full smart battery charges. For a car-specific gadgetry, I wanted to consult a real road expert, so I turned to Katie Larson, a 28-year-old who runs a blog called So We Bought a Van. She's been living and working out of a vehicle while traveling across North America for over three years. Miss Larson, converted Mercedes Sprinter, has a pressurized outdoor 
shower, bed, and kitchen complete with fridge, sink, and propane-powered stove. Doesn't sound good to me, but either way. While you properly wouldn't need all those bells and whistles for your trip, Miss Larson and Car Essentials are useful. The Garmin 45 dash cam to record the drive for $150. A check engine light car code reader to tell you why that alert's flashing and turn it off for $45. And the iAudi one-touch phone mount to go hands-free for $25. That's I-O-T-T-I-E, one-touch phone mount. For solo adventurers going to remote areas for extended periods, she recommends the SPOT, S-P-O-T, $100, $15 a month service plan, a satellite device that can provide your coordinates to emergency response teams and send check-ins to personal contacts. Planning your trip. Van life isn't just about having the right gear. Planning ahead is going to really come in handy right now, says Miss Larson, a Portland, Oregon native who runs errands just once a week to limit exposure during the pandemic. My colleague, Ray Smith, puts together an excellent guide on the road trip considerations. Also checks AAA's TripTick website for the latest travel restrictions across the country. Next, find out what kind of cellular coverage issues you might face. Beyond your carrier's potentially unhelpful coverage map, you can consult detailed network coverage maps from root metrics and open signal. You'll likely need to call to confirm whether some places you want to visit are open. If you're in a location with some Wi-Fi but terrible cellular coverage, enable Wi-Fi calling. Verizon, AT&T, T-Mobile, and Sprint support the feature on most devices, models released in 2015 or after. You'll find it under your phone settings, cellular for iPhones, connection for Android devices. And then it has uh, different apps that you can have, and you could find this article in the Wall Street Journal Um and this came from July 13th, if you're looking for it. And this is Personal Technology by Nicole Wynn. And that's all the time I have for this half hour. So with that said, grab what you need to drink and grab what you need to eat. And uh, we'll be right back with the second half hour of the Wall Street Journal. <music> 